See, that's, that tells you it's starting. Um, and I'll tell you how to get to it at some point um, soon. Um, okay, so what you have in front of you, most of you now, is a sheet of paper. And what I wanted us to do, that I should also say this is, I hope, going to be mainly a discussion class. There, um, I'm sure a lot of people actually won't return, um, having seen the syllabus on Tuesday. So it should be uh, somewhat smaller and more manageable. Um, and uh, there's nothing worse than having to sit through lectures twice a week. Um, Dante couldn't even conceive of that for the Inferno. It was just too awful. Um, so the worst thing that happens in Dante is not as bad as that. Um, so this really will be a discussion class, um, and um, the more the better. Um, what you have before you are some passages that I want us to look at. You have um, the beginning of the Iliad, which is not the first thing we're going to look at, but um, since we're going to start reading the Iliad for Tuesday, um, if we have time, we will get to that. Um, the thing that's labeled number two is the beginning of book three of Paradise Lost. So I wanted you to get a little bit of a sense of Paradise Lost. Um, the thing that's marked three underneath Paradise Lost. So there's a page that says book one on top. That's the page we're looking at. Um, is from book um, two of the Iliad, and um, it's just a little moment that we're going to look at in a second. Then on the other side of the page is a page of Dante. Um, so what all these things are about in one way or another is Homer. Um, so the first thing I want us to look at, oh, do people have questions about the text? I put all this on the syllabus, but I should ask anyhow. Does anyone have questions about the um, text for this class? I know a couple of you emailed me about them. Um, no? Okay. So basically, if you have the Lattimore translation of Homer, that's great. If you have some other translation of Homer, it's probably fine. Um, but the Lattimore is the preferred translation. If you have Lombroso, that's fine also. If you have Fitzgerald, probably not as much. Um, if you have Alexander Pope, um, I'm in awe of you. Um, but Lattimore is really good. For Dante, um, pretty much any um, serious translation, that is a translation that isn't someone trying to show that they're great, that some great poet translating Dante. Um, great poets they convert Dante. They don't translate him. But if you have a non-great poet but a serious translator translating Dante, that's fine also, um, especially if your edition has, has notes. Um, for Ovid um, and for Aristophanes, it doesn't matter that much. And for Plato, it doesn't matter that much which translations you use. Um, I would always prefer you to use the translations that are in the bookstore just because it's easier to find things. Um, but you don't need to do it. And Paradise Lost, any version at all, as again, as long as it has notes, is fine. Um, they're all basically the same. There's punctuational differences, but they're all basically the same. Um, so as far as text goes, you can, you can do it that way. Don't try to do it off the internet unless you print out um, the reading, um, because we will be looking closely at things in class. Um, and it's just my experience is you can't do it off a screen. Um, OK, um, if you look at the section um, number three, which is on the book one side of the page, um, what's happening here is that Homer is describing all the people, all the different um, Achaean, what we would now call Greek 
um, cities and states and regions that have sent um, soldiers and, um, and warriors in a coalition of the willing to besiege Troy. And um, this is in what's called the catalog of ships. One of the um, things that you'll see that you get in epics are there's always a section which has a long list of things. Um, and there's a reason that epics do that. Um, they're boring for modern readers, um, but they're actually really interesting for modern historians and archaeologists. Um, epics are partly about remembering the past. Homer, some of you know, um, didn't write. Um, he was an oral poet. This is something that we will talk about. Um, and there is no reference to writing in the Iliad or the Odyssey. It was an unknown art. Um, it was an unknown skill. The way, the way history got remembered was through epics, through people memorizing it. Um, and memorizing it in such a way that it was memorable, partly because of the story that's told, and partly because of the way the story is told in an intense and powerful poetic mo mode. Um, so Homer describes in this long list that he's memorized of people, of kingdoms that have sent um, warriors to Troy, um, he describes they, he describes those, this is um, in section three, those who dwelt about Pylos and lovely Arene and Thyron, the Alpheus crossing, and strong-built Ipe. They who lived in Kyparaceus and Amphigania, Telos and Helos and Dorian. And then suddenly in this list, which really goes on for pages, a little story intervenes. A story about Dorian, where something happened, where the muses encountering Thamorous, the, the Thracian, stopped him from singing as he came from Oikalia and Oikalian Eurytos. So Oikalia is the region and Eurytos is the city that Thamorous came. And the muses encountering him stopped him from singing. Why? For he boasted that he would surpass if the very muses, daughters of Zeus, who holds the Aegis, were singing against him. So Thamorous was a human singer who had made the mistake of boasting that he was the greatest of all singers ever, including the muses themselves. Who are the muses? You don't have to name them. Just what are they? Yeah. Goddesses of the arts. The goddesses of the arts. And do people know how epics tend to begin? By invocation. By yes, good. And yeah, an invocation, in particular to the muse. Usually not to the muses, but to a single muse. Byron, in Don Juan, begins one of the cantos. It's called Don Juan, by the way, not Don Juan. Um, Byron in Don Juan begins one of his cantos. Byron is the most um, irreverent of great poets. Actually, he's not. He's the third most irreverent of great poets. Um, but he begins um, one of the cantos of his um, quasi-epic Don Juan, Hail Muse, etc. Um, and the etc. there basically means you know how epics begin. 
Um, if you look at the top of book one, if you look at the very beginning of the Iliad, the first words in English are, sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son, Achilles, that is Achilles. Um, so sing, goddess, tell that story. That's the invocation to the muse. You turn to the muse and you say, tell me the story of, and then you describe the story that you want told. In Greek, it's menein aieda thea, um, anger, sing, goddess. Those in Greek are the first three words of the um, Iliad. Anger, sing, goddess. And they tell you the three most important things about the Iliad. That it's about anger, that it's a song, and that the person telling that song is a goddess. The Iliad towards the end um, is going to have a battle between a human and a goddess. So the question is, do you go against the gods or not? And it's almost as though anger is something that will make you fight against the gods. But Homer is saying, although I'm telling the story of fighting against the gods, the story of anger itself, I myself am going to the muse, the goddess, and asking for her help, not going against her. And then a little later, he tells the story about another poet, the greatest of all human poets, Thamorous, who was so great that he did go against all the muses, the muse of poetry and the muse of history. And they're nine muses. Um, do people know whose daughters they are? They're, no, not the, whose mother? Who's the mother of the muses? The muses are the daughters of mnemosyne or memory. So the mother of the nine muses is memory. Again, because this is all oral poetry, not written down, poetry requires memory as its preeminent necessity and skill. So here is Thamorous, who boasted that he could defeat the very muses himself. And they stopped him from singing as he came from Oikalia and Oikalia and Eurytos. For he boasted that he would surpass with the very muses, daughters of Zeus and Mnemosyne, but daughters of Zeus, who holds the ages, were singing against him. And these, in their anger, so the muses got angry at Thamorous, these, in their anger, struck him maimed. And the voice of wonder they took away and made him a singer without memory. And then that's the end of the little story about Thamorous. And then he tells us that of these, the leader was the Geranian horseman Nestor, in whose command were marshaled 90 hollow vessels. So we're getting an inventory of ships, of kings, of leaders. And then we get this little story about Thamorous, whose memory was destroyed by the muses. Um, that story became very important to later readers, but it illustrates an important point about Homer, which is um, the extent to which even in the Iliad, one of the questions, the question of singing, anger, sing goddess, the second word of the poem, really is one of the topics of Homer. Homer is interested in the events 
that the epics tell of and how those events are transmuted into poetry, which is itself an event. So that you will see that later on he will say, the gods did this, why? So that in later times men would sing about it. The gods do what they do and the humans do what they do in these stories so that stories will be told about them. So it's not that the Iliad and the Odyssey come after and tell you about things that happened once, um, but that, that um, we're only simply getting a history of. What Homer is saying is that epics, poems, are not only histories of things that happened independently of them, but that those things happened in view of the poetry that would be written or uttered, because Homer didn't write, uttered about those things. So the poetry is intrinsic to the events that it is telling about. And that is a very strong claim for what poetry, for what literature is in a culture, in human life. It's not simply a reflection of stuff that happened, but it's part of what happens. And the stuff that it talks about happens partly because it's going to be reflected in the stories and the poems about it. Um, the humans may not be thinking that way, although a lot of them are, but the gods are thinking that way. And so Homer will often talk about singers like himself, and one of them is Thamorous, the greatest of them all. And again, what Homer is saying is, I go to you, O muse, O goddess. Anger sing goddess, the third word. I go to you, O goddess. Um, and I don't boast that I can surpass you. Not at all. So that's the little story of Thamorous in the catalog of ships. Now if you go to um, the top of that page, you will see what's called you'll see the beginning of book three of Paradise Lost. Um, in, um, later on, I'll have you guys read aloud, but Milton is really hard. How many people have read Paradise Lost or any of, how many people have read it all? Cool, and how many people have read any? Um, okay, well, you will have read it all and you will um, be so much better people for it um, and save the nation. That'll be good. Um, so this is um, Milton speaking in his own voice. And it's long-ish, what I'm about to read, um, but worth um, taking in. Hail, holy light, he begins. This is the beginning of book three. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven, firstborn. So where Homer begins the Iliad as anger sing goddess. Milton begins, hail, holy light. And what one thing that that's telling you is that Milton's muse is light itself. Milton takes light to be his muse. Later, he will name her, and he will say, um, I'm not sure what your name is. The meaning, not the name I call, 
But he says that after he hails her as Urania. So he says, um, he calls his muse Urania, and he says, if by that name rightly thou art called, the meaning, not the name, I call. Urania is where we get the word uranium and Uranus, and it means sky. So Urania is of the nine muses. Urania is the muse of astronomy, the muse of the stars, the muse of the sky. And so when Milton here calls upon light itself, that's the muse of the stars and of the sky that he's calling upon. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven, firstborn. Why is light the firstborn offspring of heaven? What does the Bible say? Yes, God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the first thing ever created was light. And now Milton calls upon light itself. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven, firstborn. Or, another way of describing you is of the eternal, co-eternal beam. That is, the eternal is God, and God shines. So as long as God exists, and as long as God has existed, which is eternally, light exists, and light has existed. Of the eternal co-eternal beam, hail, holy light, he says, either the firstborn of heaven or even more so, something as eternal as God himself, may I express thee unblamed. Can I call upon you without committing a sin? May I express thee without incurring blame for doing so? May I describe you in my poem? May I express the unblamed? And then he explains a little of what we've just said. Since God is light, and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee, bright effluence of bright essence in create. That's about as hard as Milton gets. Not quite. He gets a tiny bit harder than that, but that's about as hard as he gets. But what he's saying is light and God are the same thing. God dwelt in a light that would burn our eyes to contemplate in unapproached light. But he's dwelt there from eternity, which means that God's dwelling place is light. So Milton is addressing the light, which is the dwelling place of God. And therefore, light is the effluence, what flows out from the essence, which is God himself, in create, uncreated. Light was always existed because God always existed. Light is what flows from the bright essence that God is. May I call you that? May I express thee unblamed in those words? Or would you rather hear me say, and now you know it's the muse, because he's wondering what, how to pray to the muse. Or hearest thou rather pure ethereal stream whose fountain, 
who shall tell? So light is a pure stream with no source or with an unfindable source whose fountain or source, we would call it font in modern English, whose fountain, who shall tell? Before the sun, this is true in Genesis. The first thing God says is, let there be light. But then a little bit later in Genesis, God creates the sun and the moon, the brighter light for the day and the lesser for the night. So light is before the sun, before the heavens thou wert. So you existed before the sun, before the heavens themselves, before the sun, before the heavens thou wert. And at the voice of God, as with a mantle, didst invest the rising world of waters dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. So God, at his word, turned the rising world of waters. Feel how beautiful a phrase that is. The creation of the world is the rising world of waters dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. Remember the beginning of Genesis again. And the earth was without form and void. Some of you will know that's tohu vabohu, without form and void. And then God said, let there be light. And the world began, began to be created, and light covered it all. Thee, he now says to light, thee I revisit now with bolder wing, escaped the Stygian pool, though long detained in that obscure sojourn, while in my flight through utter and through middle darkness born with other notes than to the Orphean lyre, I sung of chaos and eternal night. So this is the beginning of book three of Paradise Lost. The first two books of Paradise Lost occur in hell, and Milton has described the council of the rebel angels who have fallen and are in hell um, and contemplating how to pursue their war against the authority, against heaven. Pullman, if you know him, is on the side of the rebel angels. He thinks Milton is on the side of the rebel angels as well. And he's probably right. Um, but now Milton is saying, I've spent two books in hell where there is no light, where one of the lines, as you'll see, is, um, and everywhere no light but darkness visible served only to discover sights of woe. So there's no light in hell but only darkness visible as though there are black beams of darkness that sort of like sonar or echolocation that are showing the fallen angels what's around them in hell, but no light at all. But now, at the beginning of book three, a sixth of the way through Paradise Lost, we're back to the regions of light. And so Milton says, now I, Milton the poet, I am revisiting with bolder wing the light. I have escaped the Stygian pool. What does Stygian mean? Of the river Styx, the river of death. You cross the river Styx to go to the land of the dead. Thee I revisit now with bolder wing. Escaped the Stygian pool, though long detained. I was long detained for two books of Paradise Lost. As Samuel Johnson said, Paradise Lost is certainly a great work, but no one ever wished it longer. 
Um, the, I revisit now with Balderwing, escaped the stinging pull, though long detained in that obscure sojourn, while in my flight through utter and through middle darkness born, with other notes than to the Orphean lyre. Orphean means of Orpheus, um, whom we will read about in Ovid. But I sang not Orphic songs, but grim, deadly songs of hell. I sung of chaos and eternal night, taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend, though hard and rare. The heavenly muse helped me descend to hell to see what was there and now to return to the regions of light, the regions of earth and the regions of heaven. Thee, still talking to light, thee I revisit safe. I'm back in light. Thee I revisit safe and feel thy sovereign vital lamp. So wonderful to be back in light. I can feel the warmth of the light. And then a terrible but. But thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. So why does he say that light does not revisit his eyes? That look to find its ray, but can't? Is he blind? He's blind. Milton, yes. <laughs> Do you want to say more? No. OK. Milton was blind. Um, Milton went blind in his 40s. Um, he was the equivalent in the English government of the Secretary of State. Um, and he that this was something he didn't particularly want to do, but he did. And the work, he, what he believed was the intense work that this job um, in a time of extreme crisis, um, the intense amount of reading and writing he had to do in that job um, ruined his eyes. But at any rate, when he writes Paradise Lost 15 years later, he's been blind now um, for close to 20 years by the time Paradise Lost is published. Um, and um, if you've read Oliver Sacks, do people know who Oliver Sacks is? Um, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Um, he has some very interesting stuff on blindness. And essentially, um, Milton, he doesn't talk about Milton, but Milton would be a good illustration of this. People who go blind later in life, that is not people who, go, who are blind at birth or who, who um, go blind um, in the first two or three years of life, but people who go blind after being um, teenagers or so. After 20 years, there are two different paths that their um, neuronal, their, their cortical life can take. And one is that they can forget what seeing is. So that Sachs talks to a lot of people who've been blind for 20 years and if he asks them if they remember what vision was like, they don't. Um, what's happened is their brains have been rewired so that the part of the brain that's usually for sighted people given to visual cortex um, is now used for completely other things to, to um, absolutely intensify their other senses. And so much so that they don't even remember the experience of seeing. Is your hand up? Well, it, it's, 
if it happens, it's definitely happened after 20 years. Um, I think the slow, I think it takes at least a year, and some people just forget about vision after about a year. But they're blind people who, if you say, well, what's it like being blind? You know, isn't it a deficit? And they say, no. Um, they don't know what it would be like not to be blind. Um, they, it's sort of a weird question to them um, to ask what it's like to be blind. Because for them, it's like they don't know what the alternative is. It's like it would be like someone saying to a sighted person, a grasshopper actually might say this to a sighted person, what's it like not to be able to hear out of your knees? Because that's where the grasshopper's ears are in their knees. I mean, isn't that weird? And you're thinking to yourself, I can't even imagine what it would be like to hear with my knees. Um, so for, I mean, unless any of you can, in which case you could write an epic for your first paper. Um, so, so for some people who've been blind for a very long time, they absolutely lose even the um, memory of vision. Others will intensify their memory of vision um, and sort of because they're not using their eyes to see, they use their memories to see. Um, and some of them become visually, their mental life becomes visually even more acute than it was when they could see. Um, and um, often it's very hard to tell the difference between those sorts of people in their daily lives because profoundly blind people, Sachs actually talks about this, that people who've lost all visual cortex will like, they'll go up on their roofs to um, fix the shingles um, and they'll do everything that sighted people can do as far as like housework. Um, but they'll be doing it at midnight. Um, and um, it won't make any difference. And it looks scary to people who are seeing them. But even if it were high noon, they'd be doing the same thing and having the same experience. Yeah. Well, but yeah. But it depends on what time of year it is. Um, people who have extreme visual memory will also fix their roofs at midnight. Um, the difference being that those with extreme visual memory can navigate the world because they remember it visually so well that they can just do it. And people with no visual memory can do it because they're relying on their other senses. Milton was a person who, in his blindness, had extreme visual memory. Um, he would be the example of the person whose visual cortex, in some sense, got more intense after blindness rather than less so. Um, and you can see that here. He knows he's blind. He looks for light every morning. He wakes up, and oh my god, he's blind. Every day, he becomes aware of it. So he's revisiting light, but light is not revisiting him. His muse is light, but light is kept from him. Thee I revisit safe and feel thy sovereign vital lamp, but thou revisitst not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. So thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled. So he doesn't even know. There are two kinds of um, blindness that you can see um, simply by looking at someone. Um, some people look like they can see. Their eyes are completely clear, but they can't. And then some people get all um, cataracty or, or glauchy, and you can see um, that, of course, they can't see through those eyes. Their eyes are basically white. Uh, Milton doesn't know. He can't see his own eyes. So he says either it's a drop serene, which is the, that it looks like I can see, or my eyes are completely milky. I don't know. I can't see in a mirror.
Um, yet, despite my blindness, in fact, he did know. I mean, just so, so if, if you ask the obvious question, well, didn't he ask someone? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is yes, he did. And they said, your eyes look clear. And he was actually strangely proud of this. Um, that is, that he had clear-looking eyes, even though he couldn't see through them. Um, yet, not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt. Even though I'm blind, I continue to wander where the muses haunt. Where? Clear spring, or shady grove, or sunny hill, smit with the love of sacred song. Um, what does smit mean there? What's the present tense verb? Smite. smite. So, so he is smit or the muses are smit with the love of sacred song. Which one? Okay, good. The answer, if I say which one, the answer is always both. Um, not always, but usually. Um, yeah, so I am smit with the love of sacred song and so are the muses and that's where I wander. Not the less. Despite being blind, I still wander clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill where the muses haunt, smit with the love of sacred song. So you think that's nice. He goes out for a walk every day. But that's not what he means, as the next lines tell you. But chief the Zion, this is an alternate spelling of Zion, but chief the Zion, and the flowery brooks beneath that wash thy hallowed feet and warbling flow, nightly I visit. So every night, I go where the muses go, and chiefly to thee, Sion. Of course he doesn't. He's in England. He's not in Jerusalem. But in his mind, he is. And he goes there at night. He goes to the bright precincts, the brooks and groves and um, um, springs of Sion. Nightly, I visit. And when I do visit the nightly, this is like doing the roof at midnight. Midnight or dawn make no difference to Milton because he's blind, but it's quiet at midnight. And it's at midnight that he orally composes his poem. He can't write. He's blind. And what Milton did was every night he would compose 20 to 40 lines in his head and work on them maybe all night long. And then the next morning, he would dictate them. So the poem is written down. It's not an oral po It's not a purely oral poem the way Homer is. But Milton is composing in his head, and it's quiet at night, and no more dark at night than during the day. So nightly, he visits. And when he does, he does not sometimes. He never, that is to say, forgets those other two equaled with me in fate. So when I do that, I remember those other two equaled with me in fate, and then a little wish in parentheses. So were I, that is, so would I were, is how we would say it in, in somewhat stilted but more modern English. So were I equaled with them in renown. They had my fate. I wish that I had their renown as well. Who are those other two? Blind Thamorus and blind Myonides. And then he adds two more. Oh, and also Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old. So who's Thamorus? The singer. The singer. 
And when Homer says that the muses maimed him, this was understood. And in other stories, it's told that the muses blinded him. So they not only destroyed his memory, but they blinded him. And does anyone know where the name Homer comes from? I made a little very, very, very old joke that um, crusty, dried, um, dry-as-dust professors have been making about Homer since the year one, really, um, which is that um, the worst may not have been written by Homer, but by someone of the same name. Um, you didn't laugh then. You're not laughing now. That's fine. Um, remember what I said about class participation, though. Let's try it again. Maybe not by Homer, but by someone of the same name. Homer. All right. OK. Um, <laughs> does anyone know what Homer means, where, where he got the name? Um, Homer is um, archaic Greek for the blind one. So his name actually means the blind one. Um, so Homer is interested in Thamorous because he, Homer, is blind, and Thamorous the bard has been blinded. And now Milton is thinking, I don't forget those other two great poets, blind Thamorous and blind Myonides. Myonides is another name for Homer. Um, my, um, his father's name was Myon. So Myonides means the son of Myon. So when I think of my blindness, I think of those other two who had this fate of blindness, of being blind poets, Homer and Thamorous. And then also these blind prophets, Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old. Who's Tiresias? Anyone know? Sorry? Yes, what did he say in Oedipus? Yeah, since we brought up Sophocles before. Nice, that he's, that he's the guilty one. Oedipus, uh, I'm sure a lot of you know that Oedipus is often um, cutely called the first detective story. Um, Oedipus is trying to, the gods tell him that Thebes will not um, be in better shape until Oedipus figures out the person who's polluted Thebes. And he says, we must find this person immediately. Um, and of course, he's the one. Um, I don't. I can't even tell you what he's done. It's too disgusting. Um, but um, Tiresias is the blind prophet. You will read about Tiresias in Ovid. It's in fact Tiresias who is told when Narcissus is born, um, his mother says to Tiresias the prophet, "What will happen to him?" And Tiresias says, "He'll be fine as long as he never gets to know himself." And, um, and um, Narcissus is fine until he comes upon that little pond. And then he gets to know himself, and not so good for him. Um, Tiresias is blind. Does anyone know why? Yes. Sorry. Um, he, there was a story about he was transformed into a woman, and, and then the god Zeus and Hera were having a debate. As they always do. Yeah. Um, and he says, the woman, and Hera got mad, so she blinded him, and then Zeus felt sorry for him, so Zeus gave him second sight. All right. This is an Ovid. Um, the reason they're having the debate, the reason it's an issue, is that Zeus is making the claim, essentially, um, women have 10 times as intense experience as having sex as men, so men should be allowed to have sex with um, 10 times as often 
as women. Um, isn't that true, Tiresias? And Tiresias, who's experienced it both ways, says, yes, it is. And Hera, who's not interested in Zeus having sex with nine other women um, for every time he has sex with her, gets angry. Um, so that's the story. Um, so he's struck blind but given prophecy. Um, and so Milton, notice what Milton is saying, which is something Homer doesn't say which is that to be a poet can also mean to be a prophet, that great poetry is prophetic. Homer does not say that, but the later poets, starting with Plato, who um, lots of people regard as poets, Milton foremost among them, regard as a poet, regard Plato as a poet. Plato hated poets, um, but what <laughs> Milton thinks is Plato hated poets because he saw them as the competition for what he was doing, which is, was, uh, in the end, a kind of poetry. Um, what Milton is saying is, I want to be like Homer and Thamorous, and I also want to be a prophet like Tiresias, and Phineas, another prophet, um, less important. Um, so when that happens, I feed on thoughts that voluntary move harmonious numbers. So I think about things that simply produce poetry within me when I think about where the muses haunt. That voluntary move, that is, it's voluntary motion. It, it, spontaneous would be our word for voluntary now. That spontaneously move harmonious numbers. Numbers here means meter, means poetry. Just like the nightingale, as the wakeful bird sings darkling, he too is darkling. It's dark, but he sings as the wakeful bird sings darkling and in shadiest covert hid tunes her nocturnal note. So the, the nightingale at night in the darkest part of the forest sings, and that's what he wants to do. And then he sums up, thus with the year seasons return, but not to me returns day or the sweet approach of even or morn, or sight of vernal bloom, or summer's rose, or flocks, or herds, or human face divine. One of the most important phrases in all of Milton is human face divine. Just to tell you, what makes Milton hard is that he often uses Latin word order rather than English word order. And if you've taken Latin, the hardest thing about Latin is the word order. Um, it's completely different from English word order. Um, Milton doesn't do it that much, but a typical thing that he will do all the time is put an adjective after the noun that it modifies rather than before. Um, so um, face divine rather than divine face. Um, it's not at all a pain. Um, you get used to it very quickly. The reason he does it is that it allows him to do something that generally we can't do in English, which is to frame a noun with two adjectives of equal weight. If you think of a little red schoolhouse, you'll notice that we'll never say, oh, you know, I attended a red little schoolhouse. Um, the order of adjectives matters in English. And even though you can have two or three adjectives, 
um, modifying a single noun, um, a little red um, collapsing schoolhouse, or a, or a little red anarchist schoolhouse. Um, those adjectives don't all have the same weight. But if you could, but if you use Latin phraseology, you can frame a noun with two adjectives that will be given the same weight. Yes. Um, doesn't it, uh, also doesn't his use of Latin word order help him um, help him develop more versatility with the meter? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's something that we'll have occasion to talk about. Um, so when you get something like human face divine, notice. Well, people hate hearing about meter, but you shouldn't. Meter is, is divine. Um, notice that human is typical of English words, which is that it's, it goes dada, stress and unstress. Most two-syllable words in English um, are stress followed by unstress. Um, who has a two-syllable name? Um, so what's your name? Becker. So notice that's dada, Becker. Um, Bridget? Yeah, dada, Bridget. Simon. Simon. Yeah, anyone have a two-syllable name that goes da-da? Simone? No Simones here? I knew there weren't. Um, David? Notice that those are kind of foreign language um, importations into English. Most two-syllable words in English are, are like human, dada, human. Um, what two-syllable word in the phrase human face divine is not dada? Think mm -hmm. before you answer, divine. Yeah, so metrically you get this amazing thing, which is you get human face divine. That's how the meter is going. Da 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 da, and then you can breathe out. Huh. Da 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 da. Human face divine now. Um, and again, that's metrically a perfect thing. The way it frames face, it's stress on stress, face on stress stress. So the face is really, really, really being focused on there. And what he's saying is that the human face is itself divine. What is the most divine thing in the world for Milton? It's the human face. There's nothing more divine than the human face. That's what counts. William Blake, the great romantic poet um, who loved Milton, he loved him so much that he wrote an epic called Milton. Um, what William Blake said in his great Proverbs of Hell, which are also largely based on Milton, is he whose face gives no light shall never become a star. That's one of the Proverbs of Hell. And another Proverb of Hell is the most sublime act is to set another before you. So for Milton, the most amazing thing in the world is the human face. So he calls it divine. The human face is a divine thing. So the, and also God has a human face. It's the human face divine. The face divine is human, and the human face is a divine thing. Divine, you all know, means having to do with the gods. Um, so, so it's not, oh, this chocolate cheesecake is divine. Um, that's a Homeric idea. That is, when you say this chocolate cheesecake is divine, what you mean is it's food of the gods, which is something Homer describes, the food of the gods. Um, but divine means having to do with the gods. So here, what doesn't he see? He doesn't see the sweet approach of even or morn or sight of vernal bloom or summer's rose or flocks or herds or human face divine. He never saw the face of his wife. 
He writes a sonnet about it. He dreams that he sees her face one day when he's blind. We'll talk about this. And he wakes. The last line is, I waked. She's dead now. His, he, he marries a woman. She dies. And then he dreams that he sees her. Methought I saw my latest spouse at saint. And then the last line of that sonnet is, but oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. And in the poem, he describes how her face was veiled because he doesn't know what she looks like. But he still saw it. Her face was veiled, but to my fancied sight, love, sweetness, goodness in her person shine. So she shines at him in his dream, but then he wakes up and day brings back his night. So I don't see the human face divine, he says. But cloud instead, an ever-during dark, that is ever-enduring, dark, surrounds me <coughs> from the cheerful ways of men cut off. I'm cut off from the cheerful ways of men. And for the book of knowledge fair, I am presented with a universal blank of nature's works, to me expunged and raised, and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out. So I'm surrounded by a universal blank. And yet, in my mind, I wander where the muses go. So now he calls upon the muse of light one more time. So much the rather thou, celestial light, shine inward. Since I can't see light outside, celestial light shine inward. And the mind, through all her powers, irradiate. Shine the mind in all her powers. There plant eyes, all mist from thence um, purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So I have no mortal sight, but light come into my mind. If you can't come into my eyes, come into my mind. So light is Milton's muse. And he wants it to be his muse the way it is for Homer and for Thamorous and for Tiresias. Those are kind of the bookends of this class. The Iliad at the start and Home and uh, Milton at the end. And Milton is thinking back on Homer. The last thing, we have uh, four minutes, and we will use them. Um, look on the next page. And um, one of the people, the basic thing to understand about this course is that every person we read in the course after Homer will have read everything we've read in the course up to that point. That is, Plato has read Homer, um, Aristophanes has read Plato, Ovid has read Plato, Aristophanes, and Homer. Virgil has read Ovid, Plato. This isn't quite true, but almost. Virgil has read Ovid, Plato, Aristophanes, and Homer, and so on. Um, so when we get to Milton, we will have read um, a raft of the major authors that Milton has read and has expected his readers to have read. Um, that's part of the point of this course. One of the people Milton has read is Dante. Um, not the Englishman, but second only to him, according to Joyce. And this is from book four of the Inferno. Inferno is the Italian word for hell. 
Um, and what happens in the Inferno is that Dante, as Milton will describe himself in the passage we've just read, Dante descends to hell. Gaida, does anyone know by whom? Virgil. Yeah. So Virgil, who's been dead for 1,300 years, um, meets Dante in a kind of borderline between life and death and says, let me show you around hell and purgatory. And so they go into hell, and it gets worse and worse. But this is the part of hell which is not bad at all. Um, and as they're walking, this is line 67, the Italians on the left, um, and if you know any Italian or any Latin or any French, you will sometimes want to just glance at the Italian, um, which will be helpful. Um, if you don't, it's fine. We'll, we'll, we're doing this in English, obviously. Um, but the addition of the Italian that we have is on, um, the addition of, of Dante that we have has the Italian on the left. And so they, we did not halt our movement as he spoke at line 64, but all the while we're passing through a wood, I mean a wood of thronging spirits. We had not gone far from where I'd slept when I beheld a blaze of light that overcame a hemisphere of darkness. So here there is light in hell, though still a good way from it, yet not so far, but I discerned an honorable company was gathered there. Oh, you, says Dante, who names himself as Dante in the poem. He's not another character. He is Dante. Oh, you, he says to Virgil, who honor art and knowledge, why are these so honored? They are set apart from the condition of the rest. So there they are in hell, but they're a bunch of people living in light set apart from everyone else. And he answered, their honorable fame, which echoes in your life above, gains favor in heaven, which thus advances them. So these are people whom heaven, even though they're in hell, heaven favors them. God favors them. Just then, but, but Dante doesn't know who they are. We're about to find out. Just then I heard a voice that said, Honor the loftiest of poets, his shade returns that had gone forth. And so there's a voice from this group of people, and they see Virgil, and they say, Virgil, he's back. The greatest of all poets has returned. His shade returns that had gone forth. When the voice had paused and there was silence, I saw four worthy shades approach. Their countenances neither sad nor joyful. The good master, that is Virgil, spoke. Take note of him who holds that sword in hand and comes as lord before the three. He is Homer, sovereign poet. So Virgil is now introducing Dante to Homer, the greatest of poets for Virgil. The other poets think Virgil is the greatest poet, but Virgil says, there's Homer, sovereign poet. Next comes Horace, the satirist. Ovid is third. The last is Lucan. Since each is joined to me in the name the one voice uttered, they do me honor, and doing so, do well. So we are all together as poets. There I saw assembled, says Dante, the fair school of the lords of loftiest, of the lord of loftiest song. That is the school of Homer, soaring like an eagle far above the rest. After they conversed a while, they returned to me with signs of greeting, and my master smiled at this. And then they showed me greater honor still, for they made me one of their company, so that I became the sixth amidst such wisdom. You have to wait three more minutes, please. Um, I became the sixth among such wisdom. So what... Milton has wanted to do is to be equaled with Homer and 
Thamorous in renown. Dante is saying, I went to hell and I met the great poets and they honored me as one of their company. So again, that's a way of seeing how all these things, the internal connections, how all these things are going to gel and come together. Okay, for Tuesday, if you're not frightened away, um, we have four days on the Iliad. That would be six books a day. Um, how long does a book of the Iliad take? I would say about half an hour to 45 minutes to read. Um, so six books is, is three to four hours of reading for Tuesday. Um, so read books one, two, six of the Iliad, and I will see some of you then. Um, I think you should use Lattimore, but you can use um, pretty much any modern translation. Um, but Lattimore and Lombroso are particularly good, and Fitzgerald is particularly not good. I don't think I have Fitzgerald, but I have.